Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for August 18th, 2021, the tragedy of Afghanistan edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C. I'm joined, thankfully, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from her home in Connecticut. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And John Dickerson is still away on vacation. So we have a wonderful, a wonderful substitute for John. Uh, even more brilliant than John, possibly Alexander Petri, who's the columnist for the Washington Post, and joined us for our conundrum show this year, right, Alexander? Yes, I did. Welcome back. Hello. It's great I feel like how you. David makes everything comparative. He can never just praise. It always has to be at someone else's expense. <laughs> that is kind of true. It's all relative it, in some way. It yeah. is kind of true. It is exactly. true. Exactly. Uh, I'm a cultural relativist. Uh. This week, we will talk about the tragedy in Afghanistan, could it have been prevented? What should we do now? We're going to talk to Annie Forsheimer, a diplomat who helped shape Afghanistan policy for much of the past decade. Then the attempted recall of California Governor Gavin Newsom, could it succeed? What does it tell us about the state of American politics? And then a funny, a funny topic, we're going to do pandemic ethics. We are going to tackle a string of late pandemic conundrums. Like, should you see your unvaxxed friends, for example? Plus, we're going to have cocktail chatter. To help us make sense of the tragedy in Afghanistan, we are joined by Annie Forsheimer, who is a non-resident associate with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And she was the deputy chief of mission in Kabul in 2017 and 2018, and also the assistant secretary of state for Afghanistan until March of 2019. So Annie, thanks for joining us. I want to start with with some uh, practical questions insofar as you might have answers to them. What is actually happening at the airport in Kabul? And is there an orderly process there? And who is, who is there who is going through whatever process is happening? Um, at this point, and thank you for having me, there is no orderly process outside the airport. I'm sure that within it, uh, there are... Uh, you know, people checking paperwork and uh, deploying evacuation flights. But the really tragic story right now is what's happening around it. Uh, the airport has uh, two main roads that come into it, and these are being choked off by the Taliban, who are not permitting people, even those with paperwork, to go forward. Uh, in many cases, they are doing so at gunpoint. So we've read a lot about paperwork interfering with these special immigrant visas and also just about, I think, the kind of tangle of the decision to um, exit Afghanistan for the U.S. military to exit and how that connects to how terribly botched and um, full of miscalculations the actual very chaotic exit has been. To me, I, I bring up the visas because this question of, you know, how to uh, protect people who worked with and helped the U.S. seems so important. But I just wonder how you think about this larger question. Was there a way to leave that was not this way? And, and what steps could have been taken to prevent, you know, the chaos that you're talking about? Well, first of all, I think that, you know, over uh, and above the daily grind of news stories, I think Americans have to think about the larger picture that the U.S. has to remain engaged in Afghanistan, even if there's some kind of successful evacuation. 
35 million people are staying behind. And so there's a lot that we still need to do. Could this have been done differently? There are many, many ways it could have been. But the most important of these was that we shouldn't have been signaling our departure date. That was the biggest strategic error that was made out of quite a few. Uh, we had the option of keeping forces in country and making all of these procedures uh, take the time they needed to take without this kind of terrible pressure. And at this point, civilians being, uh, you know, facing armed men trying to run for their lives. I've been so curious about this question about what is the mistake of signaling the departure date. Those people who who made the decision to signal both in the Trump administration and later in the Biden administration, what is the logic of that signaling? Why did they put a departure date in there? Yeah. Why did they think that signaling made sense? Well, those of us, and I was still working within uh, the State Department for part of this process, uh, who understood, uh, or I think we understand the mentality of the Taliban and Afghanistan in general, told them repeatedly that that was a mistake um, because it obviously drew away the motivation to remain at negotiations. If they knew exactly when we were leaving, we had given away our leverage. Why did people do it? It really feels more like it was a signaling to the American people that they meant it and that they wouldn't be drawn into some sort of indefinite commitment. But I think the people we needed to be worrying about in this case were the ones in Afghanistan. As someone whose primary thought is a sense of great sorrow for the people in Afghanistan, especially those who put their lives and their families' lives at risk to help the United States, is this is sort of a gut-wrenching example of the consequences that government processes can have on people's life, especially with the, the paperwork situation. And I know there's also other problems on the ground, but is there something that you recommend could happen with the paperwork now in terms of making it serve the people it's supposed to serve as opposed to being a process that sort of exists in a void? Um, I think there are many things that could happen uh, which would reflect the requirements of the moment. Um, I will say that, you know, the way that we look at immigration and, and visas are a version of immigration is that the people being served are the American people, that we're always looking to protect our immigration laws, our borders, our security. So that's why the procedures have been so very complex and time consuming. But there are emergency situations where we have to look beyond our most narrow interests. And I think that there are signs that uh, Congress, which is really the place where those changes have to happen, is reflecting the urgency and is streamlining the process. Annie, the Taliban have ruled Afghanistan before, or at least an organization by the name of the Taliban. Maybe, if, I don't know how much it's the, exactly the same people, but the same guiding institution has ruled it before. And they lost power because they gave shelter to Al-Qaeda, because they created a huge amount of resentment internationally, and they became international pariahs, and they were driven out of power. Do you think there is any reason to hope that the Taliban that has taken power in Afghanistan in 2021 is going to be a better international actor? They will. They don't want international sanctions on them. They want access to Afghan assets abroad. They presumably don't want to be overthrown in, in another uh, invasion. And as a result, are they likely to protect the rights of women any better than they did to to not engage in in bloodshed on a mass scale against people who worked with with the United States? 
I, like many others, I hope the same thing you do, the logic is certainly there. Um, but there's another logic in the world, which is uh, if, you, if you believe that you won a great victory by being true to your ideals, you know, that you have kicked the biggest superpower in the world in the teeth because you were faithful, I don't really see that you're going to worry that much about what the rest of the world thinks of you. I think you believe that you had the right formula. So the way that they are going about things, you know, everyone's gathering evidence day by day, hour by hour. What questions are they asking? Who are they harassing? Are they, you know, shooting people? Or are they just scaring people? Uh, we do not have enough evidence now to know uh, how they think they're going to govern. But I'm not that hopeful that they have changed in any kind of deeper fundamental way. Forgive me if this is kind of a dumb question, but I keep stumbling on the fact that the estimates for the number of Taliban, as I understand it, are around 75,000. And we're talking about a country of more than 35 million people. Obviously, they're the ones in military control right now, and they have all the tools of fear that come along with that. But is there a way in which they're just going to have to work with some of the civil servants and local governments that will, you know, ameliorate some of the kind of pressures you were just talking about. I mean, I completely understand that if you just won, especially if you have this kind of fundamentalist ideology that you're not eager to compromise. But is there just like a reality on the ground that might not allow them to impose the kind of rule they had before? I think it's a great question. Um, it, there, there are a couple of different aspects of it. Number one is that there are parts of Afghanistan where their idea of rule and you know social behavior is is more accepted, and so they're not swimming against the tide with those uh, you know in those areas, and they come to some kind of accommodation. In the more urban areas, and Afghanistan is vastly more urbanized now than it was 20 years ago. Um, yes, they will be uh, basically trying to impose rules that people are, are going to resist. But they have a ruthlessness about imposing their own order. Um, the assassination campaign that they've carried out over the last year has targeted the kind of voices that are the ones that channel that discontent. So they women judges or prominent media figures, uh, women police, these are the people that they, and even, sorry, moderate religious leaders, those are the exact people who might be the voices of this resistance. And they're the ones that have been picked off. So I think they know what they're doing as far as a small number of people imposing their will on a much larger one. I do think that some negotiation will be possible uh, to moderate some of their worst successes. Um, you know, at least I think there's a little bit of hope for that. Annie, I've seen in your writing and other interviews you've done, you've made a really uh, good point to sort of not to completely give in to despair and assume there's nothing to do and it's the United States is in a position of complete and utter powerless and you're saying we always have something to do. I'm interested in particular what you think the United States and its allies can do right now to protect the rights and the lives of women and girls in Afghanistan? I think one of the first uh, decision points for the international community that matters is the issue of recognition. 
that should be something, you know, now that we have given away uh, almost all of our leverage, we only have a few tools left. So let's look at them carefully. Uh, recognition, political recognition, uh, diplomatic status for whatever a new government may be, and I think probably a government that will include some members of the former regime, that has to come at a price to the Taliban that they will, you know, agree to abide by Afghanistan's international human rights commitments, and they should agree to some version of international supervision of those rights. You know, that's tricky, right? But Afghanistan has had a vibrant media. So what if the ask from us all is protect the media and let the media and of course the Afghan Independent Human Rights Commission, let their own watchdogs, domestic ones in Afghanistan, be the ones who tell us what's happening. This is something they are very capable of doing, but they need our protection. And the place that this all has to get worked out is probably in the United Nations Security Council. That's really interesting. I just want to ask about one other tool, money. You know, Afghanistan is a very poor country that relies a lot on international aid. There's a lot of fear of uh, hunger and malnutrition and other poverty-borne causes of illness and death. And I wonder if that is another piece of leverage the international community has. It's a mixed piece of leverage. There are ways in which humanitarian assistance, of course, did continue under the previous Taliban regime and can continue, and it's vitally important. There's drought, there's pandemic, and the poverty, as you mentioned. But it, I think, is a little too simple to imagine that the Taliban would be motivated by development aid, you know, which was usually aimed at institution building and human rights and things that they've shown patently no interest in. And honestly, they have their hands on a vast amount of natural resources and mineral wealth and, of course, the poppy trade. So we shouldn't sort of fool ourselves into thinking that the international community's assistance is, uh, you know, is the biggest amount of money out there. And then Russia and China and Iran are all interested in Afghanistan's resources and will be, you know, will be there to be friends to the Taliban. Uh, these are all reasons why, obviously, people like me thought that the withdrawal, the abrupt withdrawal, uh, was really a strategic error. One of the things I've been sort of struck by is, at least on the internet, there's this sort of rash of people who, like, seconds ago, you thought they were like a furniture blog, and suddenly they're like, I actually know what we should have done in Afghanistan. And I wonder if there's something you wish people knew before they started, like, weighing in. I wish people paid attention to how we want simple narratives. Uh, you know, the Amer it wasn't the America's war in Afghanistan. We were like one player among so many others. And when we leave, there's still all those other players. So this concept that we end the war by leaving is so wrong. You know, and I don't mean to be tedious, but like if you sort of want to start explaining all the different complexities, then people are not that interested. But you can't have, uh, you know, something happen across the world where uh, people have had long-standing rivalries and fights uh, and, and, and fighting for, for decades, enter it and willfully remain ignorant of all of the, the swirling uh, interests around you. Annie, before you go, I just have one question, which you can answer or not. Um, 
I'm curious if there's any particular Afghan who you worked with or you knew who you're thinking about and worried about. And obviously don't disclose any identifying information that would put them at risk. But is there anyone who's who's particularly in your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, my best uh, Afghan friend uh, was uh, very young when I met him the first tour I was there and just the smartest uh, observer of individuals and politics. And I used to tell him that every time I used one of his observations when I was in an embassy meeting, people would just tell me how smart I was. And um, he is scared and he is still there. And um, he is someone I think about uh, pretty constantly. If you want, if you're an American and you want to help at this moment, like where to, where to send money, where to... My answer is not a satisfactory one um, because the amount of money that's needed to put things right is not, you know, sort of at the individual level. It's two things. Number one is that Congress has to really fully fund the refugee resettlement, uh, but they do that, right? They know how to do that. They, they have that money and there are wonderful organizations geared up and ready to go. Uh, but also the, the ask I make is that people call their congressmen and say, I care and I want us to stay engaged in Afghanistan even after a successful evacuation. Because you get this congressional, oh, nobody calls, nobody cares, the withdrawal is fine kind of narrative and it's, it's fatal. So just keep saying that. And I don't think people have to ask for some specific thing. They just say, I want us to stay engaged. That's it. Any Forsheimer is a non-resident associate with CSIS and a, was a longtime diplomat for the United States, particularly in Afghanistan. Annie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. On September 14th, Californians will vote in one of the weirdest elections you will ever see. They will have the chance to vote on two questions. The first question is whether to recall Governor Gavin Newsom, the Democrat who's been governor for the past three years. And if Uh, More than 50% of Californians vote to recall him. He will stop being the governor. There's a second question on the ballot, which 
They will answer at the same time. So before they know whether Newsom has been recalled, they will cast a second vote, choosing among dozens of candidates for who they want to replace Newsom should he fail to get that 50%. So it's entirely possible, Alexandra, that Gavin Newsom gets 49% of the vote on September 14th and is recalled as governor, stops being governor. And then one of the, whatever it is, 46, some dozens of people gets 10 or 15% of the the vote on the second question and by finishing first becomes the new governor of California. That is an entirely possible scenario. What the hell is going on there? How do we end up with a situation like that? Does it make any sense? No, it's absolutely wild. I feel like, like the, also the possibility that he could be replaced by a guy who's been campaigning with a live bear. I just feel like we should keep the bear front and center as much as possible in this. But it was fascinating reading about this, that the origin of this was in like the progressive era. Hiram Johnson, who was Teddy Roosevelt's vice presidential candidate, was like, you know what we need? We need to fight the big railroad in California. We've got to have a more just system where the people can gather together. And if their elected representatives aren't representing their interests, we can recall them and pull them back. Democrat, Republican, it makes no difference. It's not going to be a partisan tool. We'll have this wonderful thing. And now it's like, this is absolutely, it seems as far as we can tell, probably definitely a partisan tool because it's a wonderful way of getting a minority of voters to propel their candidate into the office of power. So it does seem like a strange novelty thing that's like like so many of the tools of democracy has been around for a very long time and was implemented with wonderful intentions and now is like, oh, but we didn't think of this particular use case. So Emily, what is wrong in particular with the California recall structure? Other States. I mean, most states have some form of recall structure. If you have a uh, a governor who is, you know, uh, running a a, uh, a a car car thief operation of the the governor's mansion, you probably want a way to recall them. But what's wrong with California, and how is it different than other states? Well, everything is wrong with it. Um, <laughs> starting with, so you need twelve percent of the of the voters in the previous gubernatorial election to sign a petition asking for the recall. That's a lot of people, but it's hardly like a majority. It's not even like a significant plurality. Then you have an up or down vote on whether to recall the governor and then a follow-up vote on who should replace him or her. The governor's name can't be on the list of other candidates and none of them have to win anything like a majority. So there's no runoff. And that's why you can have the situation you described where Newsom could be recalled by, you know, 49 percent and then someone could end up being the governor with like 12 or 13 or 15 percent, which is totally undemocratic. I mean, just think about that. Would it be solved if you just allowed the sitting governor to appear on the ballot as who should be the governor? I mean, you could do that. I think, first of all, I don't actually believe in recall elections. If you have a governor running a car theft operation, you can impeach them or embarrass them into resigning. I mean, we just saw that happen in New York with Andrew Cuomo. It doesn't always happen, but when something is sufficiently scandalous, it tends to happen. And you know what? There's also this thing called the next election, which is how you deal with politicians that you don't like. I think I feel particularly strongly about this because I live in a city that has two-year terms for the mayor. You're only mayor for two years. And it's bananas. Like, it's a really bad idea. It means that you govern for like 18 months. 
So I just yeah, wait till you hear about the House of Representatives. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, at least those people are not administrators, right? I mean, I think you could yeah. make an argument for four-year House terms too, but I think especially when you have administrative responsibilities, when you're running the yeah. government, you should be able to like have some time to do it. And so but, this to me is yeah. some like democracy on overdrive that ends up being undemocratic. That's actually going back to our Afghanistan topic. One of the things that was wrong in Afghanistan, people said, is that the U.S. had whenever there were competent people. They would get circulated. You'd you'd be you'd serve for a year doing something. You're doing well, so they'd put you on another assignment, and so people never stuck in assignments where they were doing effective work. But that's and it was part of why we didn't have sustained policy too, right. right? Yeah, and that's a problem I think with this kind of recall system as well. I think it's just a big mistake. And finally. Whatever apparatus there is, if you're going to go down this mistaken road, you should have the person who wins have to have a majority of voters behind them. That just seems like fundamental. Yeah, this didn't come up in 2003 with Arnold Schwarzenegger because he did get like more votes than the person he was replacing. But yeah, although I was looking and he did, you're right, but he got um, 48.6% of the vote. So still, still not a majority. Like, yeah, exactly. But the. Um well, it's hard to get a majority when there are 20 people in a race. Yeah, although that wasn't the case with Schwarzenegger, I don't think. But in any case, let's continue. The, the, so, Alexandra, is Newsom – do you think any governor in this position uh, in California is going to basically face recalls from now on because of negative partisanship? Or is it Newsom, is it Newsom uh, uniquely or – specifically is being recalled because of stupid things that he did either around the pandemic or his maskless, his incredibly gushingly idiotic decision to have a maskless celebratory dinner at California's swankiest restaurant during peak COVID, which just pissed a lot of people off and were like, screw it. Oh, yes. The infamous French laundry dinner. No, I think there's a a confluence of circumstances that led to this happening where it's a combination of the fact that they got an extension from a judge to get signatures during the pandemic. And then he managed to do this spectacular faux pas that combined every aspect of politics that people don't like. And so like people have been doing recalls there before they just haven't cleared the signature threshold, which is, as you mentioned, not super high, but I mean, given how large California is, it seems like a lot of people, but percentage wise, it's really nothing. But they were able to clear that this time because of those two things combined. So I think... And a lot of money, right? Let's make clear. This is oh, yeah. also a way that if you have a ton of money, you can be a spoiler. Although there's so Although, much money pouring into it just in general right now. The, I mean, to keep him, I think it's like 51.3 million or some cartoonishly yeah. large number, yes. which could be going to almost any other purpose more productively. Yes. Well, also the $276 million it takes to stage the election could be going to almost any other purpose more productively as well. It's just a giant sinkhole. So the, the leading Republican in the race, the, the person who is... So there's a whole bunch of people who have put in to become Newsom's successor should he fail to meet the 50% threshold. And there are a bunch... There's a guy campaigning with a bear... <laughs> <laughs> and then there's this uh, conservative talk radio host, libertarian conservative talk radio host, Larry Elder, who is a poses the minimum wage. He's been a climate change denier. Why does he is he first in this pack? Do you guys, he, he's leading. And so the theory is, if Newsom is recalled, this guy, Elder, who is just a conservative talk radio host, could be the governor of California. 
I mean, he has a platform. He has money behind him. And also, we're talking about such a small percentage, right? He's leading, but not like with some large number of people. And so it seems almost like anyone could be in that position. Do you think, Alexander, from a game theory perspective, that the Democrats uh, choosing not to try to field a strong backup candidate is is bold or unbelievably stupid and a ludicrous <laughs> risk. So, so Newsom has basically made it clear he does not want any strong Democrat putting himself out there to be his replacement should he fail to get the 50% threshold. As a result, the people who are leading in the, the vote are all Republicans. And there's no uh, Northern California congressman who's setting his cap to become governor by sneaking in in the recall. Is that a bad decision on the Democrats' part? Well, it does have a sort of sense of creeping, horrible deja vu where you think, oh, well, we're we're just setting up such a stark alternative that people will certainly be motivated to vote against this Trump analogous figure. Certainly no Trump analogous figure would possibly be elected to any sort of large office because people will see this threat and respond to it. And just that a certain chill (laughs) falls over my soul when I hear that sentence. But what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, nothing, yeah. nothing historically or even in yeah. the present. Yeah, No chance that Dianne Feinstein could die under this new Republican governor, is there? Not at all. None of that. Oh, good. I hadn't even thought about that. But there's so many <laughs> things that could occur. <laughs> then again, the, the people they were naming is like, well, what if Tom Steyer is running? I'm like, well, I'm not sure that Tom Steyer will be the solution to this problem either. Although he did have that fun event uh, where he, he really gets Iconopop out there to... DJ his events and like you know that would have been an element of fun I suppose to co- contrast with the bear so maybe they should have thought about it from that perspective. Emily, do you think the Democrats should have felt fielded should field someone? I don't know. I feel so. The whole thing is just such a waste. I mean, you can understand if you're Gavin Newsom, you're like, no way, I'm the governor. Like you give them this alternative, then it lets them off the hook. On the other hand, you know, going to a fancy restaurant indoors during COVID when you told everyone else not to for like a, you know, wealthy donor, it's like a textbook error and it plays right into the kind of fancy pants image that Gavin Newsom has, which is, of course, that fundamental error of politics that I feel like John would make sure to say if he was here, which is like when you make the mistake that just makes everyone think about what they already didn't like about you, that's the thing that really sticks. Okay, but sure. I should note that Gavin Newsom denies that this dinner took place indoors. He has a theory that the restaurant had three sides, and so it actually fell within California's COVID rules. But come on. Like, is it a venal sin? It's a venal sin. Like, it's a venal sin. Well, yeah, sure. How many indulgences I mean, he's, a, he's a venal he he's a venal person. He needs $51 million worth of indulgences, and that'll probably. But <laughs> no, I think it is an interesting question. Where is How much is this about him, though? And how much is it just about somebody figured out, hey, there's this nifty loophole where any time a Democrat is governor of California, we can change that. Um, right. And what the Democrats really should do, what you know, oh. the legislators should do in California is change this recall um, system. Oh, I thought you were going to say what the Democrats really should do is if Newsom loses, is that recall whoever succeeds him on day one. Yeah, but by the time you do that, <laughs> it's going to be time for the next election. Guarantee you yeah. that someone immediately I'm sure puts you're a right. recall campaign no, in. Absolutely, place. that will happen. But couldn't they do like a Dave <sighs> situation where they get somebody else whose name is like Gavin Newsom with like two Vs, and then he's like, oh, I'm going to step down and face you know, in favor of my favorite friend, Gavin, with one V. Uh, Like, couldn't they do some sort of ballot thing? I feel like there's a lot of people. I mean, then again, the name Gavin Newsom, of all the names that there would easily be a duplicate person out there, I'm not 100% on that. (laughs) 
<laughs> I like where you're taking this, Alexandra. It's uh, appropriately absurdist. I would like there to be, when you mentioned Hiram Johnson, I feel like there should be more politicians named Hiram. <laughs> that would be even better. Yeah, or Hiram, uh, heyo, politicians. Uh, uh. Is, uh, do, you guys think, do you guys think that Newsom is going to hold this off? I mean, probably, but people have to turn out and people are kind of pissed off and like tired of this whole thing. They are mailing tons of ballots, though, so hopefully that will help. Yeah, I think the mailing will help. I think it does. It comes down to turnout, she said, an original insight no one had ever uttered before. Well, time will tell. Uh, All right. Oh, another one. Another one. Yeah. We earned our bad pundit uh, marks this morning. Slate Plus members, you... Get bonus segments on the GabFest, and you also get benefits like no ads on any Slate podcast, as well as bonus episodes of some Slate shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence. And you also get to support the work that we're doing here on the GabFest. It's only a dollar for your first month of membership, so please sign up by going to slate.com slash GabFest plus. Our topic this week, Alexandra, who is one of the funniest writers alive. Nah, maybe not. (laughs) Alive or dead, one of the funniest stories. Alive oh or dead. no, it, it got more complimentary. The direction I was not <laughs> expecting. She's going to tell us some of her favorite funny books, and uh, we will tell her some of ours and funny writers. I cannot wait for this. I just read a really funny book, so I'm in the mood for funny things. I'm excited about this. We have talked endlessly, as we should have, about the pandemic, about Delta, about masking, about schools. But in the course of that, we have ended up skipping over some of the pandemic and uh, lifestyle questions that actually occupy most people's thoughts most of the time when they think about it. These kind of conundrums of pandemic life. So when we were thinking about what should we talk about today, we were thinking, oh, should we talk about booster shots? Or whatever? And we were like, actually, there's a whole bunch of sort of small questions that you grapple with, which some are moral or ethical or just efficiency questions that that we haven't gone after. So I'm going to start with you, Alexandra. There was a Wall Street Journal piece that you pointed out about remote work. And we're all, lots of us are remote working. And this was a story about people who are doing remote work. And they were like, you know what? I can do two jobs remotely because no one's going to know that I'm working on my second job. I can just mediocrely do two jobs uh, instead of my regular one job where I showed up in the office and just had to do it. So my side hustle can now be a real job too. Is it okay to work two jobs and hide the second one from your other employer? Um, I think my answer on this might be surprising, which I think it's, if you want to subject yourself to working two full-time jobs and are able to perform them to a level that people aren't bothered by that, yeah, go ahead. I mean, knock yourself out. I mean, I, I think... It's sort of a testament to how much time you spend at the office knowing like, oh, I have to sit here, but I'm not really doing anything that uh, sort of remote work has pulled the emperor's suit off of that a little bit. And some people are like, I'm going to respond to that by going to the beach. But some people are like, I'm going to respond to that by taking on another full time job. And I say more power to them, honestly. That brings up another question in this vein, Emily. So. So much. So when you used to go to the office, those of us who had office jobs, you know, you could maybe sneak out to go to the bank at lunchtime or something. But now if you're working at home, there's so much, so much of my workday at home, I'm doing chores. I'm like preparing dinner, doing the laundry, or maybe I even walk out to 
do the grocery shopping and do a phone call while I'm doing my grocery shopping. Is that okay? And should you admit it when you're doing that? Or should you try to hide it? Well, are you less productive? Or are you actually just doing just as much or more work out of some sense of duty and guilt, but spreading it out and mixing it up with these other activities? My girlfriend actually has a brilliant thing I may have talked about before, which is that when she's on, she if she's doing her Zoom calls, she turns her camera off. And rather than be on her computer, because she knows she'll just like surf Twitter, she does, she, she irons or folds her laundry. And she's, she pays much more attention to yeah. the work because she's basically doing this mindless, useful task on the side. So that's yeah. a case oh, where she's more productive because she's doing something else. Yeah, I actually do some of that, too. I'm a big f- sweeper of the floor. Emily's um, sweeping the floor right yeah. now. <laughs> no, I feel like no, it's like when I, you're listening to a podcast while you're also ironing. Once I did on a Zoom call, not a work call, I should clarify this. Uh, I'm like, I will also work out and I'll just be on mute and my video off. And that didn't work as well because you have to be kind of, I was like doing one of those video things where you have to like, you know, lower your eyes and inhale and do all this stuff. I, I wouldn't recommend that. I think there's limits to what you can multitask. Yeah, I think the do the double workout um, multitasking. If you end up like someone asks you a question, or you just have a second where you, it's you can't fake it because you're like right, you're breathing really hard and you can't answer. So I agree that there are certain settings, and we could think of more of them that are not a good idea to combine. But ironing or folding laundry or sweeping the floor, like yeah, I have what, at it. What about leaving the you know going out and going for a walk or going. In doing your shopping, leaving, I mean, I not have zero compunction about that. Yeah. I don't. I guess I don't feel like leaving the house is any. I don't see a boundary there. Like I'm fine with people. People go for walks all the time now on meetings. Sometimes people schedule meetings that are walk meetings, and I think that's totally fine. I mean, I guess it's a little bit distracting, and sometimes you have to mute, etc. But again, I think often people think better when they're moving around, when their body's engaged. So that seems totally fine to me. Yeah, I also think it sort of comes down to this idea of like, who who are we really serving here by being very man in the gray flannel suit and typing frantically at our desks all the time just to, to do the appearance of working? Whereas if we just got to use that time to go to the dentist and we could still produce the same amount, like it's, it's this very sort of puritanical, someone's looking down and judging me type vibe. I've, I've got to work. There's Calvinism in my heritage sort of energy that I think it's nice to maybe get away from a bit. Yeah, but it is, you know, that's just, it's also one of these inequitable divides in life, which is there are certain people who have jobs where you have to be physically present. Yeah. Like you can't, you can't be a coffee shop uh, barista without being in the coffee shop. You definitely Wait, you be, can't, you can't be, work in a warehouse unless yeah. you're in the warehouse. Or you can't be a doctor or a nurse seeing patients. But on the other hand, yes, you some can the, actually no. That, oh, well, but you have like, I don't know. I guess you could fold the laundry. I, I feel like then people want to see you on Zoom. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know. My friends who are doctors went back to the to seeing patients in person a long time ago um, or going to the hospital. And same with people I know who are nurses. One benefit of those jobs is you don't have homework constantly hanging over your head all the time, which some office jobs do produce. Yeah, you don't have to take the espresso home uh, and produce it overnight. Now, I was going to say, speaking of jobs you wouldn't think could be remote, I, when I was in Tampa back in 
I think 2012 for the Republican convention, I was visiting a lot of the uh, strip clubs. And there's one called 2001, A Nude Odyssey, where you can actually make it rain remotely. They have like a technology where you you pay the website and then it spits dollar bills out on your behalf and sends you a video of that. So like the things that you would think you might need to be present for, it turns out like the human human ingenuity continues. That is the, the efficiency revolution that everyone keeps talking about. Okay. Can we talk uh, about the ethics of these third booster shots? Because I actually feel like that is sure. really thorny. Or is yes. that not fun? And that's no, a no, bad should, no that's, yeah. It's sitting right there. Should you get a booster when much so much of the world isn't even vaxxed? Well, I feel very torn about it. I mean, I think there are people who should get a third shot. Like if you are immunocompromised or you're in another risk group, um, you know, older people, I get it. I kind of think for the rest of us, it's like super questionable right now. Because it's taking away from shots that could be going elsewhere in the world? Yeah. I mean, it just seems like we've already hogged vaccines to such a terrible degree. You know, all these international promises about some kind of equitable distribution have, as far as I can tell, kind of gone out the window. This just seems like totally adding to that. And, you know, for healthy people who are not older. Well, I guess this is the problem, though. It's really hard to tell what the rest of that sentence is right now. Like, currently, it seems like for those people, the vaccines are working well enough that you get a breakthrough infection, you're not going to be in the hospital, and you're not going to die in all likelihood. But if that changed down the line, then the ethics of the booster would change, too, I suppose. Yeah, I think it does really depend on the data. And there's also the thing where by being vaccinated, you're not just protecting yourself, but hopefully you're making yourself Other less able people. to transmit it. Although, do we, uh, w- with the Delta, everyone seems to think that y- you can still carry it. Uh, oh, no, I'm, I'm standing like somebody at like a commu- town hall meeting. I'm, I'm spewing medical <laughs> misinformation that I've uh, No, I think you're right. It comes sadly. out of your pores. It comes out of your pores. <laughs> No, because uh, the whole idea of like you're, I mean, the whole sort of you're masking not just to protect yourself, but to specifically to protect other people. other people. And with the vaccine, it's a little bit more, well, if I get it, I won't be hospitalized. But then again, the best way for everyone to be safe is for more people to be vaccinated. I think <laughs> the solution is for more people to be vaccinated. But yeah, who should be, should we be vaccinating people who already have been vaccinated? I think the priority should be people who haven't been vaccinated yet. Right. But then if we're th- so but it matters so much whether you're thinking beyond the country's borders or not. Right. Yeah. If you're thinking internationally, you think like, no way, we shouldn't take these third shots. They absolutely should go to countries that have low rates of vaccination. If you're thinking with inside the United States, yes, it would still be much better for the unvaccinated people. Like the marginal benefit of that is much higher. But if they're not going to do it right. and there are all these shots, well, then is there some public health benefit? Yeah, I mean, it's it. it I find it hard to work up a lot of energy to say that the, the unvaccinated people should get priority for the booster, for, should get priority for vaccination over people seeking boosters because, man, they've been offered it so many times. And like, I mean, we should keep offering it. And of course, it's more important. It's more important that the unvaccinated people get the shots. But you're not going to go around like judging people, not yes. welcoming to you, them to your home because they took a third yeah, shot. I'm not going to. Are you going to get a third shot? I, I think depends I'm sure it depends on how readily available it is, what the evidence is about, like, you know, how much is this stealing from the world supply? If they if they set aside, you know, 40 million boosters and there are some going wanting, I'm sure I'll be like, yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, will you? 
I mean, I think similar calculus. Like right now, I don't feel comfortable taking one, but also no one's offering it to me right now. So it's not really a real world problem. So should you visit and spend rich, uh, deep time in close contact with your unvaccinated friends? I like the concept of rich, deep time also. Um, I think it's interesting some of the unvaccinated people I know were babies right now or like, you know, the like people who physically can't get vaccinated. They're like friends who they've been vaccinated. They've been careful, but you know, the guidance just doesn't exist yet. And I have visited those babies. Um, but I think it's also, you have to do so cautiously because they don't have the protection that you have. And so it's, it's not like I'm going to punish them by denying them my rich, deep time. Although I'm sure the babies aren't like, oh my gosh, these, I really enjoyed when you sort of sat there and tried to test my object permanence. But uh, at at the same time, it's more for, like I'm worried for them than it is that I'm judging them for not being 12 yet. I guess I mean more adults when you have adults who might have children also not vaxxed, but adults who've made a decision not to be vaccinated. I mean, I don't feel really comfortable. I, I, when I thought the vaccines were this like incredible shield, I wasn't thinking about this at all. And I really enjoyed not thinking about it. But now that we're concerned about breakthrough infections and about infecting other people as carriers, I don't feel comfortable being inside with um, people who I know aren't vaccinated. I, I guess I, I think I come down on the, another side of this from you guys, which is, sure, there's an increased risk. There's an increased risk for them. There's an increased risk for you of some sort. Um, but... Man, if there's anything I've felt from the last year, it's that human connection is human connection is number one, two, and three in the world. And if you are vaccinated, it's not that risky to you to go and spend time with someone who is unvaccinated. It's more risky to them than it is to you. And it it overcomes alienation and division and and builds human connection and love and 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 comedy and community and that's like really 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 important even though these are people who may have made a decision you disagree with or uh you know maybe living living in a way that you don't you have disagreements with but we have disagreements like if you pushed on anybody deep enough you would find that they held morally repellent views and did things that you thought were completely outrageous well they might not also be causing a public health crisis yeah no yeah so you're sitting right so you're sitting there in in judgment over them for helping to contribute to this public health crisis that's true and and i certainly but you're also playing a potential role i mean i agree with you the risk is relatively small but i mean why can't you hang out with them with the windows really wide open and the breeze blowing or outside yeah, no. Yeah, as I, w- I would say, because going sure, back you to can, the- you can minimize risk, but it's like, do you yeah. avoid? You're like, oh, do you be like, I can't. We can't come and see you. I'm sorry. No, no, I haven't. Oh, I yeah, no, I that. think yeah, the you just go back to hanging out the way you had to hang out before anyone was vaccinated, which is you know you're outside, you're in your winter coat, you're six feet away. Reverting to that with unvaccinated people is totally fine. But I, I think like there's so much to be said for human connection, but I don't want to do that at the cost of somebody might die. <laughs> um, If I can possibly avoid it. To me, it's worth it to be a little bit inconvenienced. I mean, I think, though, there is an ethical question about, like, the social pariah uh, example you were just giving, David, which is, like, I mean, I don't think I'm up for this personally, but you could argue that 
you know, people should use their social capital to make unvaccinated people feel badly as a way of peer pressuring them into doing it. I just myself, um, it's just so uncomfortable. I, I do have a friend who's not vaccinated and I spent some time in the spring trying like exhorting and making arguments and it didn't work. And I just ended up feeling really frustrated about the whole thing. And I have given up and not brought it up for months. And maybe that's just cowardice, but it goes back to what you were saying before, which is like trying to use human relationships to overcome division and not being a scold, I guess. Right. Does I mean, does the, it's, it's also, you've already answered your own question there, Emily, which is, was it effective for you to harangue and guilt your friend to try no. to get them facts? And apparently it wasn't. Now, maybe there are examples where it would be, but I, my own experience is that it's really hard to shame and guilt people into doing things you don't want them to do. You can compel them. You can force them to do things they don't want to do. That's well, not a different your friends, thing. really. No, not your friends. Children, but the, so, yes, you can, you can, yes, you can force or your the government can force yeah. them or like the yeah. fact, you know, I mean, I'm totally, yeah, you can lobby. You should lobby for mask mandates is what you should do. I mean, for pet, pet shot. Mandate, well, the man- yeah. Or you can't go to an indoor restaurant or right. the gym if you're not vaccinated. Those, um, inducements, are seeming increasingly appealing to me. Yeah, there was an interesting piece about people at Lake of the Ozarks who are still highly not vaccinated. And they said one of the things, like people had had family members sending them all kinds of emails, but somebody had gotten vaccinated because there was a concert that that person wanted to attend where you needed to be vaccinated. And like, all, you know, your cousins and your aunt and your uncle and your sister sending you all this stuff didn't make a difference. But having something that you wanted to do that the door was right. shut apparently did. So right. more things like that, maybe. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, uh, when you are sitting empty nestily at the end of this week, because I think you're sending your second child off to college. Oh, wow. And you're desperately downing cocktail after cocktail. What are you going to be slurring your cocktail chatter to your friends about? Well, uh, (laughs) this is a funny piece of cocktail chatter to bring up with that intro. But um, as GabFest readers know, I am very concerned about school and kids going back to school and the effects of the pandemic um, in exacerbating all our existing inequalities in education. And um, I read an article in The Lancet this week, a new article that I thought did a better job of just very clearly explaining the problems, the challenge, and some ideas for solutions about what the authors are calling health equity, schooling hesitancy, and the social determinants of learning. So this is an article on The Lancet by Mira Levinson, Alan Geller, and Joseph Allen, who are education and public health professors at Harvard. And I really recommend reading the whole thing, but some of the statistics in it that just jumped out at me, there are between one and three million children nationwide who were simply, quote, lost by schools last year. That means they didn't officially enroll. They never showed up in person. They never logged in. Wow. Wow. Yeah, right? Right? It's just staggering. And we just don't know whether they're going to come back. And this phrase, school hesitancy, that these authors use um, is their way of capturing their fears that, you know, the same problems of mistrust, of real risk, of um, other factors they outline that made parents afraid to send their kids to school last year may really be continuing because of Delta and these continuing issues of mistrust. One other fact in here that is important for the solutions is they say that in high poverty schools, I think it was like fewer than one fifth have even a part-time nurse on staff. So, 
you know, these are things, there's a lot of federal money coming into the schools, um, these kinds of beefing off of personnel, of nurses, social workers, guidance counselors, people who can really help families feel more comfortable. And finally, they recommend using schools as vaccination sites currently for 12 to 17-year-olds, but then for younger kids when the vaccine is approved for them. So I really recommend this piece. Alexandra, what is your chatter? Oh, well, well, my chatter is a little less topical than that, I have to say. But That's okay. I just So the thing that has been getting me through the pandemic has been just, I really love a good messy memoir. And I'm obsessed currently with this book called Never a Dull Moment by Marguerite Cassini, uh, that, which basically all I do whenever I meet a friend is I just sort of grab them by the ear and I tell them about this in an uninterrupted monologue for some 10 or 12 minutes. But I highly recommend it. It's, so Marguerite Cassini was the illegitimate daughter of the Russian ambassador back in like 1901. She was Alice Roosevelt's best friend and it lives up to the title. Like the very first few pages, she's like, oh, I single-handedly stopped the Boxer Rebellion because I had a cute dog and then my mother lost her operatic singing voice and just every page, it's something like that. I tried to throw myself off a cliff, but the field marshal of France came and stopped me and then he gave me a speech about how the Russian people will always be resilient and then her family loses everything in the Russian Revolution and that she has to make her living as a seamstress and then her one of her sons becomes a gossip columnist and the other one becomes... Jackie Kennedy's designer. And oh, like Cassini. Yes, exactly. This is their mom. And she basically wrote the book to be like, here's what happened in my life. And it's completely off the rails on every single page. I was reading it like just silently to myself, but it would be so wild that I would stop and interrupt whatever my husband was doing and be like, you, you got to hear what Marguerite is doing. Like we were on a first name basis by the end of this. I highly recommend Never a Dull Moment, which is just a treat from beginning to end. And, you know, the the rare memoir that lives up to its title entirely. The lemony snicket awesome. of French memoirs. Exactly. My chatter is about another actually Slate podcast. And uh, our old colleague, Emily, and my old colleague, uh, Dahlia Lithwick, has a podcast called Amicus, which is a great podcast about the law. And she interviewed a law professor named Michael Heller about his new book, Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives. And I have not read mine, and I've only uh, sort of read this interview that he did with Dahlia. And, but it's fantastic. It's so fascinating. It's just about property rights. And in particular, he talks about airplane seats and about who owns an airplane seat. So when you sit in an airplane seat, you have the button, which allows you to recline. And then you have a person behind you who is sitting there who's like, what the hell? You've just reclined into my space, which I my space where I'm trying to work on my, on my uh, fold-down tray, and you've just reclined into it. And the question is, like, where's it, what's the property right there? Who is legal possession of it? And this guy, uh, Michael Heller, has a totally fascinating discussion about how essentially what airlines have done is they've sold the same piece of property twice. They've <laughs> mm-hmm. sold the person who's sitting in the seat in front the, the right to recline into space and the, the belief that they get that space behind them. And they've sold the person who's sitting behind the belief that they get this space in front of them, this air in front of them, to not have a chair two inches from their head. And that ambiguity allows them, whereas if they admitted, oh, actually, you don't really get all this space, this is not really all yours at all, people would be more resentful. But it's this ambiguity about who has the ownership um, makes it makes it possible for them to charge you a higher price and that what they don't want to admit is that ultimately who who does have the right 
is it the person behind or the person with a reclining seat? That is totally a great way to think about that question. Who, who yeah, does? That's What's fascinating. The, the, air, the airline has set me up for failure. Who, Wait, what, I mean, there's I a legal, There's a legal answer to it. Who has the right? The person who leans back must the have the right has, because you're allowed to lean right. back. Yeah, yeah, the person who leans back. But the airlines do not want you to know that. They don't even want flight attendants to know that. Wow. They don't want it known. And so what makes that the case? Is it the inclusion of the button that implies that I have that right? Or they just know it in their secret heart of contracts? Well, I guess this, the inclusion of the button button that allows it sort of solidifies it. Yes. But it, it and I guess it, there must be some small print somewhere in deep in airline contracts that says you have the if you get the seat you have the right to use it in the way that it's set up. So uh, anyway, it was great. So uh, listeners, you send us great chatters and. You tweet them to us at at SlateGapFest. So many fun ones have come through. And this week, we have a really delightful one that came to us at at SlateGapFest on Twitter from Leslie Guild. Hi, David, John, and Emily. This is Leslie from Sydney, Australia. And this is a suggestion for cocktail chatter, which I think David will enjoy, especially as the site's called Board Panda. It's images, photographs of uh, famous events and sites that have been taken from unusual and interesting angles. And I hope you'll enjoy it. So this is a really amazing set of photographs. It was very cool. I clicked on every single one. Yeah. Yeah, like the back of the Sphinx, the people watching terrible events unfold, the people watching the space shuttle explode. Or the David the, surrounded by bricks to protect it. David surrounded by bricks during, well, I never knew it. that was incredible. That was incredible. The, um, the behind the Price is Right wheel. I yeah. love that one, too. Yeah. Did you guys see that? <laughs> yep. Was, or the Nevermind baby getting out of the pool. <laughs> that was also great. I feel like just the headline on that one is yeah. already perfect. <laughs> totally. Yeah. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Joss is back. That's so good. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Bridget is back. She never really left. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. And please tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and Alexandra Petri. Alexandra, so great having you. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Alexandra Petri, as many of you know, is a columnist at the Washington Post, and she's a really funny columnist at the Washington Post, um, which is a lot to live up to. That's which hard. is a lot, it's and hard. not very many people pull it it's off. Hard. Like, it's like Alexandra the, might be a category of one, yeah. practically. If you're George Will, it's like you can just like throw out, you know, just write some of that shit, or you know, Ely David Mazenary. Brooks. Like David David Brooks. You just like you know whatever you find some some thing to some immoral moral failing to hold forth about but for you you actually people expect when they open alexandra peat dry column they expect to have a laugh and that's that is that's a hard thing we don't need to talk about that <laughs> but what we are going to talk about is um you i am sure are a scholar of great funny writing and so hopefully you're going to tell us about some 
funny writing that you like, funny writers, funny books, and why. And we'll and and we'll tell some of ours. I just read a really funny book that I'm so happy about and I want to share. Ooh. Yeah, we I'm I'm curious what you read, but I have so many of these cuz I like just love reading funny books, especially like really old funny books. Like I'm like, listen, Aristophanes has jokes. If you don't believe me, uh read the clouds. But um but but do believe me. It's very funny. It's mostly about farting. Um and just ragging on this one guy named Cleisthenes, whose sex life was apparently they they didn't think it was correct, and they had a lot of opinions about it. We don't know anything else about this. He wasn't like the great lawgiver; he was a different guy, and they really were judging him hard. An author that I can never get enough of reading is P.G. Woodhouse. Speaking of funny people from the past, just on a sentence by sentence level, I think he's one of the funniest writers of the English language. He and Raymond Chandler apparently went to the same like high school in England. And so there must have been a teacher there who was just like really into good similes because they both have that same thing where it's like, she gave me a look you could have poured on a waffle Um, or... (laughs) He emitted a a stricken woofle like a bulldog who's been denied cake. Just like Mm. on a sentence by sentence level, it's just. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.